When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time, partly because we've got a book house at the moment, so I've been on book talk. I do all sorts of interesting places doing that. Partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives. Partly also because I've got box blight, and the box hedges in my garden have died, and so Ben and the garden, and the garden my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening. Plus, I'm writing book three in the series. So I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay, <laughs> but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years, and I'm doing this. You know, all of us have a, a you know how much there is after you've finished a book, and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So, would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five-minute source-created read from the best of the world's media, would that be helpful? Do you mean? A curated source in an easily digestible form <laughs> of all the headline-making news in the world. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Of would that be useful? Would. I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh -huh. that. <laughs> Do and it's tell. called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. Excellent. www.theknowledge.com forward slash rabbit hole. Well, that's good to know. Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Folding Pocket. This week's episode is brought to you by Babbel. Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello, rabbit holers. Hello, Kat. I'm very well. Fighting fit. A little bit. It's an issue, right? When we do an early one, like today... The train I get, which is the 6.59 from Eastbourne, it gets into London, Victoria at 08.36 on a good day. Mm. It's a crowded train. Mm. So if we do a later one, I can sort of spread out a bit and have my copious notes, which you often remark on, <laughs> around me. But on a crowded train, I feel a kind of more focused knowledge. I feel, in a way, more of a hedgehog than a fox. <gasps> but do you go through it in your head Do you, while you're stuck in this? human cauldron do you think about your notes or do you just think i can't deal with the topics right now no i think about but the thing is because it's crowded also i put on noise cancelling headphones mm. so i have to be really careful that what i pick to listen to is not interesting so i'd stop reading and start listening yeah 
Right. I agree. It's instrumentals, not yes. lyrics. I do, yeah, and sometimes just really, really kind of music-y stuff, just as a way of insulating me a bit from the sometimes demanding environment of the track. But what about you? You come on the track. Well, I find, actually, when writing, I obviously, unless I'm in a library or something, I do like to have music on in the background because I like the top layer of my brain to be busy with that while I dig in with the rest into the meat of what I'm trying to get to. But you can. No, I can't. I have to have it quiet. I can be in a cafe. I can have atmosphere. And I actually work really well on trains and planes and traveling. It's uh, just bizarre. I can just write so much better. But I think for me, it's forward motion. So something, if I've got a problem I need to work out, I'll go out on my bike. And it's something about forward motion makes me think in a more directional way. I don't know. Maybe. But writing on transport, ships, yes. oh my goodness. Mm. You will never write more happily than if you're on a I remember you saying that. It's a very good way to finish a book is to oh, go on a yeah. speaking tour on a ship. Yeah. Do your bit, <laughs> la, la, la. For the first time, sit in your cabin, undisturbed. Yes. Occasionally a butler coming and bringing you a trip, canapes, maybe a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> the disembodied voice is shaking his head at me with weary disdain. <laughs> Can't even I say think that's like a But also, band. I can actually remember the music to each of the books I've written, the ones that I've really enjoyed. Oh, so each book has a soundtrack? Yeah. Okay, White Ship. So that was Nicholas Cave, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. How interesting. Yeah. And then going all the way back to one I wrote in 1998 or so was Wham. Really? So, in fact, George Michael mainly, but it's incredible. They each have their own theme tune in my brain. But Do you remember not... the facts? No. Oh. They're long submerged <laughs> so like the white So every time you hear Wake Me Up Before You Go, Go, you think of the regicides. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would be it, wouldn't it? That would be a very good song for have them. Have you seen the Wham Netflix film? No, I saw you had recommended it. Oh, have you seen it, Kat? I haven't, no. So good. Have you seen it just modern voice? You must have seen it. Imagine you with your finger so-called on the so-called pulse, so-called. I liked your comment about how amazing it is you can be in a pop duo and end up not hating the other one. Yeah. I didn't know what you're on about. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very difficult relationship now. When maybe a topic for Rabbit Hole Detectives one day is the trials and challenges of being in a pop duo. This is the weirdest name drop I'll do in this entire episode. But I was cooking at home one day and the phone went and this voice said, Hello, it's Madonna here. And I thought, well, who on earth is this? It's too ridiculous. And then I realised it was. And she said she wanted to get married. This was when she was getting married to Guy Ritchie and used my house for the wedding. And we had this rather surreal conversation where I was just thinking this is beyond belief. And then at the end, she just said, and how are you doing? And I said, I'm fine, thanks. How about you? And then she said, well, I'd recommend you don't give birth and bring out an album in the same month. Good advice. I, stuck, <laughs> I have stuck by it religiously. <laughs> That's, That's a great advice. Thing. Yeah. She then didn't have the wedding with me, but it was at least we had that moment. Skibo Castle. That's right. Somebody I know actually did the ceremony. Sadly, if you like, I can't really join into this conversation. We've got a Madonna story. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one. Have you? Go on. Well, it's not mine. David, my late husband, worked in the ER in Cedars-Sinai in L.A. And Madonna was brought in one day with something wrong with her. And he had to triage her, but she brought her PA in. And he wasn't allowed to ask her... A direct question. So he had to say, how are you feeling? And the peer would go, how are you feeling? And she goes, that's so great. The peer would go, that's so great. So it all had to go through the PA. It was a weird thing. Very Mad. good. Shall we go from that Sorry. nicely into your subject this week, Charles, which is fairies? Yes. See, I had no idea what I was going to stumble across when given this. I just assumed fairies were 
lovely and sweet and little sprites, etc. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong, really. They have long been, I mean, we're, I'm talking several thousand years, been seen as a, a very sinister and serious tradition of real malevolence and danger. You can go right back into ancient Indian culture, into the Bible with Lilith, who is seen as a sort of scary fairy in a way. Scary fairy. Yeah, and these are the people who are really dangerous. They have particular resonance with the deepest fears of humankind. So one of the great associations with fairies is that they will come and snatch your child or kill your child. For instance, Lilith, if uh, somebody like her breastfed your child, it might die of poisoning. It's a lot of superstition, obviously. That's the basis for the fairy tales. It was to try and explain the, the inexplicable to try and join a sort of semi-divine force to things you didn't really understand. And this could be in ancient Greece, you know, the woods and the rivers having nymphs associated with them. An extraordinary sort of array of associations with the real nub of country living in particular. So fairies were connected with farming in a big way, particularly with apple trees, as I suppose a, a symbol of fertility, and in many ways were seen as the result in early Christian thought as the sort of outcasts after a, a rebellion by angels against God, that he slammed the door of heaven behind them, and some were confined to hell. Miltonic fairies. There we are. So fascinating. And then the fairies who were not confined to hell but had been cast out of heaven ended up as fairies. And you also find this human need to want to believe in a another species that lives alongside them. If you look at the ancient tradition of fairies, they were seen as any size. They could be human size down to thumb size. That was the, the general thing. They were, on the whole, quite good looking. This seems to be a, a common factor among fairies, that they were either handsome or pretty. But dangerous, all the time dangerous. Boy fairies. Boy fairies, too. Because yeah, I and think the of them as girl fairies. Yes, yeah. and then the... They are mainly girls, and also they could marry humans, but very dangerous for humans to do so because they could turn on you and be vicious. I mean, look at Tinkerbell, even in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Yeah. Tinkerbell is a vicious fairy, although after Disneyfication, she becomes <laughs> this beautiful little sprite, really, with a temper. Very interesting. I just went to see Midsummer Night's Dream last week. Very ambivalent creatures, the fairies in that. Their relationship with the humans is a sort of commentary, a dark commentary on that. Their intervention with the humans has kind of messed them about, rough things up a bit. Enchantment is not pleasant. Enchantment is quite dark and menacing and dangerous. And these fairies were like, remind you remember the flying chimps in Yes. Not the sound of music. What was Wizard of one? Oz. Wizard of Oz. They're like that. Yes. Are they always winged. Well, not always winged, as far as I can see. So you could become infected by fairies with different things. And the oldest reference to them is from Jervis of Tilbury, who documented English folklore in the 13th century. And he describes them in a, in a Latin text uh, about a local woman. I'm really thrilled we can get an eel into the story. Uh, a local woman who was <laughs> captured by water sprites when going into some water. And they then kept her prisoner and she ate an eel pasty, and the oil from the eel, when she rubbed her eyes, gave her the vision into all sorts of things that only fairies could see. So there is this need in the psyche, certainly before Christianity becomes 
grown up, if I can put it that way. There was this sort of belief that these are the beings that can see below the surface of what the humans can see. And again, this is uh, seen so people who are wet nurses or nannies to fairy children, when they are washing them, they will become infected with fairyism, if I can put it that way, and see into the dark side of life. It resists all sorts of logic for a very long time. And there's a resurgence of belief in fairies in Victorian times and Edwardian times. Peter Pan, which I've already referenced, was a huge hit from when it first appeared in the early 1900s. And then you end up with this sort of feeling of a need to explain the way the world is turning. Yeah. Things were happening too fast. So there must be a sort of theory behind what's going on, which the fairies hold the key to. And this leads to perhaps the most famous modern-ish story of fairies, which brings in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Do you know what I'm about to say? Well, I do, as a matter of fact, because <laughs> you think, why the hell did you even fall for that for one second? If yeah. We're talking about the same thing. Yes. So we're talking about the Cottingley fairies of West Yorkshire. So this all happened in 1917, and that's a relevant date because it's at the height of the First World War. And there was a sort of trend at this time to see the rise of spiritualism as somehow explaining the cataclysm that had overtaken humanity. And two young girls, first cousins, one of whom lived in West Yorkshire, the other one went to stay with her, a nine-year-old called Frances Griffiths and a 16-year-old cousin, Elsie Wright, basically staged some fake photographs of fairies playing in a valley near them in Cottingley where there's a beck, a small stream, really. And the photographs were amazing. They look incredibly real. And there's the girl, Frances, is in the first one with fairies dancing in front of her. It's amazing to us because we know it's a fake now that the great photographic experts at the time, they weren't prepared to say these fairies are real, but they were prepared to say what's in front of the camera is real. What you're seeing in this image was recorded by the camera. The really interesting thing to me is when you look at those pictures, they're so obviously Edwardian fairies, if you yes. see what I mean. That there's an aesthetic to them which is absolutely of its time. I suppose at the time, because you don't see that because you're living that aesthetic. But to us, mm. it seems so obviously artificial. Well, you're absolutely right, because it's been worked out since that they were almost cutouts. There were brilliant re-representations of images in a book called Princess Mary's Gift Book of 1914 with wings added. So the older girl had a gift for drawing and creating these little things. And then both of them were quite good in the father or uncle's darkroom doing the forgeries. And, you know, it wasn't until in the 1980s that it was finally debunked because the girl, Elsie, still alive, confessed to it. And do you know where it all came from? It came from them being scolded. They'd go down to this little stream, get very muddy, and were always being told off. So they said, no, we've just been to see the fairies. But that's so fascinating. But they, <laughs> they just went along with it and couldn't believe. And then, then they were in too deep to get out of it. And Sherlock Holmes, the creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was a mad keen advocate for their truth, as it were, and pretty much staked his reputation on it. But then he had been conned before by Piltdown Man. He oh. had believed in that too. He needed things to be true, didn't he? He did. I mentioned the First World War. You know, he does lose one of his sons in the First World War later, actually, in 1918. But you're looking at this human need to find something that makes sense in a very turbulent world. So interesting, isn't it, that he should have created Sherlock Holmes based on a professor at the University of Edinburgh, wasn't it, who was famous for deductive reasoning, and yet he seemed to be 
not a great proponent of that himself. A credulous person. Credulous, and he wasn't a Christian. So he was looking for an alternative belief system. It's an extraordinary hoax that went on for a very long time. Resonance for me is children needing to explain misbehaviour, meeting adult credulity. For example, some of the apparitions at Fatima or at Lourdes or at Medjugorje, all these things about it, it's often involving children who have visions of the Virgin Mary very often. Yes. Come back and then maybe they were out when they shouldn't have been. What's a good excuse? The Virgin Mary appeared to me. Oh, what did she have to say? Very often you'll find what the Virgin Mary has to say when it's reported by church officials is exactly what church officials want the Virgin Mary to say. So she comes and says, oh, yes, I'm absolutely great, great believer in the Immaculate Conception, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's handy, da 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 when I've been involved in some, what you might call, exorcisms, very often it's been teenage children who have been the agents of that, more often than not. Makes sense. And it is a childish thing. So we don't know what the, the origins of fairies are, but it is very possible from research that it goes back to conquered people who would have to drift into the shadows. Oh, yeah. And particularly there's a feeling among some, some academics that when... People arrived with metal weapons. Those with stone ones disappeared into the shadows, into the forests, into the hills. And you'll find in particular the beliefs are alive now in what would be the original sort of Celtic fringe of Great Britain in Cornwall. You still have some fairy beliefs. Yeah. And in Wales and Ireland and parts of Scotland. And, of course, they were the people who were pushed away into the shadows once stronger military forces arrived in England. What are Robin Hood and his merry men? They are fairies of a sort. You're saying Robin Hood's a fairy? <laughs> well, I'd, I'm not going to... You are so very naughty, and I'm not going to go down that one. <laughs> Kevin Costner <laughs> might have something to say about that. <laughs> but it's the same thing with the Greenwood, isn't it? It's a place... And it's why in, in Shakespeare uses it so well, because he loves doubleness, doesn't it? It's a place of refuge, but also a place of danger at the same time. They're very fertile places. And Oberon, king of the fairies, makes a very clear statement in his defence that although he's a fairy king, he's not scared of the church bells. So there was a connection with Christianity that was would see off these dangerous fairies. So in the night, if travellers were travelling at night, they would carry a cross, they would say prayers out loud, they would throw bread or salt in front of their path, which are symbols of Christianity, to protect themselves against this sort of dark force that was out there that was definitely there, but you wouldn't see, but it could really undo you. And what's your favourite fact of fairies? Well, my favourite fact is the origin of the most common fairy tales. So there was a long-time feeling that they were from the 16th, 17th century, but we now realise that academics have done research similar to how biologists look at how diseases spread, and the thinking now is that some of them are five or 6,000 years old, and they are a common denominator, that the stories are referenced in different cultures long before languages existed. These are spoken tales from the past, before English, Italian or French were languages. People told each other fairy tales. So, for instance, Jack and the Beanstalk goes back to a, a group of stories known as The Boy Who Stole Ogre's Treasure. They're from over 5,000 years ago. And you've got the same with Beauty and the Beast and Rumpelstiltskin. They're about 4,000 years old. So they were told, not written down, and they're older than the classical mythology that we're, we know a little bit about too. Fascinating. What's the equivalent now? In a secular kind of supernatural world, where what are the fair, what does the job of fair? Oh, I see. I thought Is you meant things that they would carry down forever. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if the thing about the paedophile or these kind of figures that are patrol the edges of danger and safety in Urban our culture. Myths. Take, 
but they take on a slightly dehumanized, slightly. Do you think it's um, serial killers? You know, be another one. Our fascination with serial Mm. killers. Yes, transgressions of boundaries that are taboo, and so the figures become denatured somehow and become monsters, or don't know. I think it's much harder to have this now in a world of so much more scientific knowledge. Yeah, Christianity saw fairies off into the corners. Really, once they gone. Not in medieval times. They very much believed in it. And Hobgoblin and foul fiend. Well, hobgoblins were very nice fairies for the household, but the Puritans in the 17th century cast them in a darker light and saw them as semi-demonic. Before that, a hobgoblin was a good thing. Yeah, well, you see, the puritanical turn of mind, very intolerant of that mm. sort of thing, sorcery and yes. all that. No thanks very much. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Kat. So we're going to go from your fairies yes. to my fermented foods. Fantastic. This time. All the Fs. Yeah, it's all the Fs today. <laughs> so I thought this was going to be a nice and easy one, thinking we'd just go through some of uh, Richard's favourite dishes again. We're going to leave the fermented shark this time, but I've got okay. some other ones later. Great, But um, now I was thinking it was kind of nice sort of niche little things. But actually, once you start looking into it, you realise just how much of food all over the world owes something to fermentation. And actually, it's really the core of pretty much everything that we really enjoy. So I wanted to look into some of the science of it as well, what it really is, because it's actually something that goes back at least, we've got evidence, and I'm going to get back to fermented food and drink at least 13,000 years. So Pretty much as soon as people start to settle and, and use... How do we um, know 13,000 years? So there's some really good examples of traces on things like pottery. I think the earliest ones, actually... Dental plaque. It's not dental say. plaque this time. <laughs> you and your dental... Pink no. onions in your dental plaque. <laughs> the earliest is actually a form of beer brewing mm-hmm. uh, from cereals that date back about 13,000 years to a Natufian burial sites. And that's a Mesolithic culture in Palestine and southern Syria from sort of pestle type things. So we can do lots of extracting residues from pottery and from things like that and actually trace what they were making in it, which is extraordinary. And we've got some really brilliant, I'm going to get through in a moment, evidence of the oldest beer, the oldest wine, all of that, because of, because all of these are fermented foods and in a sort of culinary sense fermentation is transformation and preservation of food by different types of bacteria so it's got it's a metabolic process that transforms a carbohydrate usually a sugar or starch into something like an alcohol or an acid so it's a it's a kind of fairly straightforward process you've got bacteria yeast or mold or anything like that essentially changing something quite complex into something much simpler. So there's different forms. You can have it based from cereals, so beer and and bread. That's all based on fermentation of cereals. You've got, obviously, vegetables, so anything from pickled or sauerkraut or anything like that, that's starting with vegetables, fruits, going to wine, cider, fish, herbs, meat, anything. And it's all sort of those same processes, milk products. Mm. So that's going into yogurts uh, and milk. And they come from a really useful, I think the reason why people do it is partially for preservation, because obviously something like milk won't stay fresh for very long. The moment you then turn it into cheese, you can keep it for pretty much forever. It's also got the benefit of of health, essentially benefits, because if you're lactose intolerant, it's the milk sugars that you can't, your body can't process. But if you're essentially fermenting it, turning it into yogurt or cheese, then that changes it so that your body can be better able to develop. 
as I've always thought, that someone who was lacto-intolerant could not have anything that had any basis in milk. But that's not necessarily Not true. necessarily, no. So it doesn't work for everyone, but mm. it's actually it's the milk sugar. So they're lactose, which is the milk sugar. So essentially, ah, so, there, so lots of people who are can have certain cheeses or yogurts because that process that has changed it, which is quite useful. When do people realise it's actually good for you? We all know now gut health, we need all these fermented foods, but were people just eating and drinking these things because they liked the taste or was there an element of health in it? Certainly with things like milk, it would have been a realisation that people couldn't have milk and so to actually get the benefits from it we don't actually know that so there doesn't seem to be that much written about it as a sort of from a health perspective mm. that seems to be quite a recent thing it is also though useful for the developing world where you have these really bland very starchy diets so fermented foods and essentially garnishes so anything from soy sauce or whatever is actually helping turn something that's really quite bland and yes. dull into something more uh, useful also helps preserve things like minerals so there are certain dishes that can actually keep those minerals in that sort of fermented form and save that over in the winter mm -hmm. or whatever. So I think people probably have realised it was a very handy thing for quite a long time. But obviously very early on, uh, development of beers and wines were some of the, the sort of key points, really. But I think what's really interesting, so we've been fermenting things for thousands and thousands of years, but we didn't actually work out how it worked until 1857, which is extraordinarily recent. Really? Yeah. So nobody knew really what happened. Maybe it was the fairies souring your milk. Because that May was a well thing, wasn't it? It was, exactly. That's so true. Yes. So, so what's that, the Crimean War, is it? 1857? <laughs> oh, maybe. So, but what happens was uh, there's a French scientist called Louis Pasteur. And up until this point, everyone presumed that it was... Well, they, they knew there were sort of microorganisms, so things like yeasts or whatever, affecting these fermented foods. But they assumed that they were decaying and, and dying, and that that's what's making it ferment. But he was then approached by somebody who was making alcohol out of beet juice, which was apparently quite a common type of alcohol. But um, yum, yum. it wasn't going very well because half of his production wasn't turning into alcohol, but instead turning sour, more like a, a vinegar. And obviously he was trying to produce this on a big scale and couldn't work out what was going wrong with this process, which was essentially fermentation. So Pasteur realised, looking at the uh, microscope, that different things were happening in these different vats. In the ones that went wrong, it wasn't turning into alcohol, but into acetic acid. Mm. And what was going on was actually that there were different cells, different metabolic processes, different bacteria that were essentially interacting with it. So he realised that what was happening was in the proper fermentation, the yeasts would transform the sugars into alcohol, but if not, then it was something that was turning it into acetic acid instead. Now, he then realised that he could also do something about this. So he uh, essentially invented what we now call pasteurisation. So from Pasteur, which is the way of heating the samples to a specific temperature for a specific length of time. And that kills the bacteria that you don't want. So that's essentially then used to 
stop abnormal fermentation of wine and beer and is now used a lot in milk and, you know, whatever other foods. But isn't it interesting, Kat, that that in its time was seen as an enormous benefit into health and hygiene? Yes. Whereas now, mm. unpasteurised is seen as, if not perhaps health, it's certainly sort of more organic, isn't it? And sort pure. of more delicious. Yeah. yeah, and purer. So we've gone back to that, I think, from sort of trying to to make it all standardised to something more I had natural. a most interesting exchange with Arla, the dairy beer moth, on social oh, yes. media this week. Because I've started buying filtered milk, you know, those big things of filtered milk. It's a process where milk is passed through a ceramic filter, as far as I know, and it gives it much longer life in your fridge. Hurrah, if you're away a lot, that's really useful. Came home, poured myself a cup of tea, spot of milk in it, left the milk out with the top off, actually, on a warmish day, and it went off. I did that awful thing of putting milk in my coffee and the solid sunk to, you know, the awful yes. thing that happens. So I said, well, I've never had that happen before. I mentioned it on Twitter because my life is so empty. That's the only thing I had to talk about. <laughs> and then got a correspondence <laughs> with Arla, the milk beer moth, about how it works and about the filtration process protects you to a certain degree because milk always wants to go off. It's the nature mm. of the beast, actually. You can arrest yes. those processes, but essentially fermentation, the process of fermentation, are kind of raring to go. Yes, absolutely. And that's why you know people would turn it into cheese and turn it into yogurt or turn it into something else that's preserved over the winter because it was always seasonal as well, dairy much more than it is yeah. now. Have you had kumis? Kumis, no. Have you had it? No, I've not heard of it. Kumis mm. is fermented mare's milk and yeah. is drunk in Mongolia. Yeah. For a long time, it was about the only thing that was drunk in Mongolia and the only chance the Mongolians had of enjoying the effects of an alcoholic drink was through kumis. But the alcohol content was so low that they drank vats and vats and vats. So if you were in the court of Genghis Khan, wherever it was, you would drink bucket loads of fermented mare's milk. When I was in Mongolia, I was staying with some very nice herds people out on the steppe, and I, they said, we'd like some kumis. And I went, yeah, they gave me a bowl of kumis. It's the hairiest drink no, no. you've ever had. It's like full of hairs. You have to sort of no, pour it out. No, just... You just think, thank goodness for an Aperol spritz after a while. It's so true. I mean, I pass out at double dipping, but that's even worse, isn't it? Can you it? not double dip? No. Just can't do it. Can't do it. If I see someone double dipping, I'm not touching that. I mean, I'm not a germaphobe, but that is the one where I just think, no. You are a hypochondriac, though. Well, thank you. I mean, it you takes are one to know one. <laughs> no, but you have described yourself. I have. Now, I do take a lot of care of myself. <laughs> That's how I like to see it. And double dipping is a no. Double dipping is no go. If you're a master chef, they stop filming if you double dip. You're yes. just not you allowed see? to do it. Yeah, That's well, fair you have standards. If you're sharing the dip, whether it's hummus or ketchup or whatever it is, I think it's quite an imposition to leave your saliva in there. Well, when you put it like that, <laughs> it is a big ask, isn't it? Mm. Here's a body fluid of mine, yes. which you've not asked for. That's right. <laughs> and get on with that. Spread it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean, actually. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Kat. <laughs> yes. Fine. I think we call that a rabbit hole. <laughs> that is a rabbit hole. Fine. Would you like to hear my favourite? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> it was difficult because I was going to go down the whole, you know, different oldest recipes things. But I think... Just in light of all your interest in weird fermented things, I had to find some new ones oh, <laughs> because I you. couldn't go what's I do. You may or may not have heard of these. So from Thailand, fermented ant eggs. No, never been there, but no, I want one. Apparently they are it's a, it's a dish you, you make in February and March. You just and pick regret it. for the other ten months <laughs> yes, of the year, probably. Exactly. Sounds horrid. But that's when the ants lay their eggs underground and you spend a couple of days just using salt and boiled water. 
and make a dish complete with chilli, garlic and shallots. Phil really like it. Yeah, chilli, garlic and shallots and you're away really, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I think so, that's and, the pickle. You know, insect eggs. proteins. Yes. Yeah. Stay, like, yeah. Yeah. They're eggs like anything else, aren't they? They've eaten grasshoppers in Uganda and they were scrumptious. Yeah, mm. crunchy. And then the second one on that sort of similar note were backbone balls, apparently, <laughs> from, from Sudan. They are fermented vertebrae. No. Yes. So you take the vertebrae, chop them into small pieces and sun dry them and then add water and salt, mould them into a ball and let them ferment. And then you have a bone ball. A bone ball. Yes. This is way, way beyond even my so furthest imagination. by the time you eat that, has it sort of disintegrated? So it's, it's not crunchy, it's gooey, is it? Or, or it must be. I don't know. So many questions. Mm. Maybe it's a slow, slow yield, you know? Yeah. Like yes. A, maybe a fermented marrow bone. Yeah, which was, I mean, doesn't... Conceivable. That's it? right. You suck out the marrow, yeah, that would work. There we go. That's... Well, well done, Kat. That was really good. Okay. I like we that. We can go on talking about fermented foods for ages, I think. Yes. But we're going to have to... Go over to you, and I'm a little bit worried about this one. Are you actually going to try to hypnotise us, Richard? <laughs> no, I'm not going to try to hypnotise okay, you. I have no qualifications to do so, <laughs> nor desire to do so. I would rather beguile, captivate and charm, which perhaps related phenomena, who knows. Have you ever been hypnotised? I have, and it worked. I was in California, the place where you try these sort of things, and I was suffering from some form of stress or whatever, and I went to see this doctor. And I was very sceptical about the whole thing. But then I realised afterwards I couldn't remember quite a large period of the hour I'd paid for. And then he produced, he gave me, a, you know, this is 15 years ago or something, gave me a CD that he had made. It's for sleep, actually. It's to help you sleep. And I've never got to the end of it, the CD. Oh, and it does work. But I, he starts with this thing and it almost sends me to sleep. This, it's the intonation. He goes... And so begins. And you think, wow, I'm out. <laughs> and that's how it starts. I don't know much of the rest of it. But it's an extraordinary phenomenon, a sort of two phenomena in a way. On the one hand, you have the therapeutic application of hypnosis. On the other hand, you have the sort of entertainment end of hypnosis, yes. or the actual hypnosis. Of course, the two are actually quite closely related. It's got a very ancient history. Avicenna, we know, for example, the great pioneer of medicine and therapy in the Arab world, 9th, 10th, 11th century, cured the king of Bukhara of the delusion that he'd turned into a cow. Do you know about this? No. no. <laughs> the king of Bukhara thought he was a cow mm. and would just moo around his palace lowing and then refused to eat for he felt the diet. He didn't want to eat another cow because he was a cow himself. So they summoned Avicenna and Avicenna realised that this was not something he could cure by, you know, a poultice or a leech or something. He needed to enter into the imaginative world of the king who thought he was a cow. So he did and started treating him like a cow and led him out of his delusion back into sanity by understanding that there was a mental state he needed to occupy mm. to share with, with the king who thought he was a cow in order to decow him. And it worked beautifully. It gets kind of interesting and a bit more familiar when you start getting into the Enlightenment age, when people start thinking about forces in new sorts of ways, you know, gravity, we can think about that. Magnetism is a hugely appealing idea to people, the notion that there were these mysterious forces that you could see at work invisibly in the world. Well, what was going on? How did that all hold together? What were the sources of these forces? You get some extraordinarily interesting people. The great Irish stroker, 
I think his name was Valentine Great Streaks. Disembodied voice might be able to look up for him. But he was a 17th century Irish Puritan who believed very much in the power of magnetism as a sort of close to hypnosis. It's this notion that you could, by placing iron plates on people, then the application of mind through the power of your mind produce magnetic forces that would cure. His name was Valentine Great Rakes. Beg your pardon. Known as the Great Irish Stroker. The Great Irish Stroker. His reputation preceded him. And I think at one point he actually did go and meet Charles II, one of your favourite monarchs, in the court. A certain scepticism pertained also to the extraordinary claims of this Irish Puritan, the Great Irish Stroker. You wouldn't put that on your business card now. Well, maybe you would. I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? The name, which I suppose is the one that's immediately familiar, would be Franz Mesmer of Vienna, who was a physician, and a pupil of the notorious Father Hell, a Jesuit, who promoted some of these ideas about hypnosis. What is hypnosis? Basically, it's a sort of organised sleep. It comes from the Greek word meaning sleep, the application of sleep. It's the manipulation, the organisation of sleep, because in that state of sleep, therapeutic consequences may prevail, which is what you, what you want. Mesmer believed in animal magnetism. He thought it was, again, it's a very common feature with Enlightenment thinkers and emerging sciences and therapists that the world is full of these forces. He believed in animal magnetism and that he could, through the application of animal magnetism, create states in people that would enable them to behave in different sorts of ways. When he was Viennese, we got involved in the court of Louis XVI. He had a lovely machine, which was a sort of little column about a couple of feet high, which he would place in the centre of the room. And there would be holes in that machine, and he would place iron rods within them, which would point to the various people who were there for therapy. And they'd do a sort of little dance around as these healing magnetic hypnotic forces uh, went into them. And And then at the end, he would play a glass harmonium as a sort of encore which is terribly nice. (laughs) You're never very far from the accusation of charlatanism because the forces that are brought into play are very difficult to subject to any objective test, if you see what I mean. What is it? Is it animal magnetism or is it a placebo effect? Is it something that's actually happening inside the mind and experience of the subject of it? Well, that was a thing that was a big discussion. People like John Braid came along, other significant names in this sort of thing. Elliotson and the Oakey sisters, you know about them? No. no. Elliotson was a sort of great believer in the power of hypnosis. And he was beginning to put that into a more therapeutic, medicalised context. And he had the Oakey sisters, who were these um, sisters, teenagers. I was talking about the 1830s, I think, in London, who were subject to, I think they had epilepsy. And he was convinced that the application of hypnotism and hypnotherapy uh, would alleviate some of their symptoms. And so he used to put on a show, but it really was a show. The operating theatre was not a, a word of a single meaning then, in a sense, because these were performances, so people would come and see us. And one of the Oki sisters, he would sort of take downstairs to the wards and get her to sort of mystically, in a trance-like state, float around among all these ill people with the idea that it would help cure them. Very little evidence to suggest that it did, of course. People were subjecting these claims to inquiry. There was an interesting committee of Lavoisier and Guillotin, the inventor of the guillotine, uh, who were instructed at the time in pre-revolutionary France to subject some of these claims to the test, gets a bit more interesting when you have, for example, after Freud's theories of the unconscious began to really, really make a huge impact in the way in the way people thought about the nature of what it is to be human, what our conscious and our subconscious and our ego and our id is all about. Anna O, oh, one of the most famous of Freud's patients, was someone 
who's tried to divine what was going on with her through trance-like states, sort of introducing people into a sort of hypnotic state, this idea that you could in that state get underneath the sort of machinations and justifications and rationalizations of our conscious minds and delve into the unconscious where the stuff that really made us who we are was going on. So that was a big thing. Again, very hard sometimes to see a very clear distinction between the disinterested pursuit of knowledge with a therapeutic benefit for the patient and a bit of showbiz. You know. Well, and there are famous hypnotizers now, aren't there, who who specialize in fields such as making people give up smoking, etc. And it, you know, I know many people who it's worked for. There is, it's one of those things, you know, we talked about fairies earlier where you realize that's absolute hokum. But hypnosis does have a basis in truth, doesn't it? Well, there are, I mean, if you've ever seen a stage hypnosis, I mean, somebody, I mean, someone like uh, Paul McKenna, for example, yeah. who's yes. hypnotized me once live on, on air, but it didn't particularly work. But because I was live on air at the time, I thought I was obliged to sort of show willing, if you see what I mean. So <laughs> the listener would feel that they've got their, their money's worth. We watched him when I was little, absolutely terrified me. I was years, I just thought somebody's going to come along one day and hypnotize me and I'm going to run around like a chicken whenever I hear yes. the word toothbrush or something. <laughs> but there are others, I think, who understand the power of... I mean, we are, all of us, eternally hypnotized. How does advertising work? Mm. What does social media actually do to us? Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm particularly affected by advertising. And then I open my kitchen cupboard and I see that every choice I have made yes. has been in some way influenced by advertising, consciously or unconsciously. Yes. It kind of gets into you. And advertisers are extremely good. They've got very good at learning how to beguile us. I think one of the really interesting challenges that tech is going to pose for us is the amount of data that people now have that know more about us than we know ourselves. It's a different kind. And the potential, if not quite to hypnotize us, but to kind of beguile us, to charm us, to persuade us, to convince us of something, using the same sort of techniques, looking into my eyes, looking into my eyes, da, 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 can go horribly wrong. As an historic case, 1909, step with me, if you will, to Somerville, New Jersey, to the morgue. There, a Mr. Davenport, who is a hypnotist, is about to demonstrate his art to a Mr. Simpson. Mr. Simpson is lying in the morgue, unfortunately dead. And Mr. Davenport is saying to him, Bob, your heart is about to start. Bob, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. Your heart is about to start. Come on, Bob, come on, Bob. All to no avail, because actually he was dead, and not even a hypnotist can raise the The reason he was doing this was another hypnotist, Mr. Everton, who the night before at the Opera House in Somerville, he was a stage hypnotist. And he had asked someone to come up from the audience, Mr Simpson had done so, and Mr Everton had put him in a hypnotic trance and then said, you are rigid, and put him between two chairs, feet on one, head on the other, and then jumped on him. The idea being to show the rigidity of the person. Well, he did indeed rigid, but afterwards when he took the hypnotic trance off, unfortunately, he seemed to have had a ruptured aorta as a result, and so he died. And so Davenport's job was to try to kind of mitigate the charge of yes. manslaughter yes. against oh. Mr Everton for his um, unfortunately malfunctioning hypnotic <laughs> attempt <laughs> on, uh, on, on Mr Simpson. So there you go, be very careful. But actually, um, Everton wasn't, he did get off, actually, although he later got into some soup because he was discovered in the Prohibition era with considerable amount of alcohol that he was selling illegally and did claim, actually, he could have used his hypnotic powers not to get caught, but he was an honest citizen and it was a fair cop. Played it straight. Do you want my favourite one? Yes. Yes, please. 
Imagine you're in the Soviet Union. It's 1989. Perestroika, glasnost is happening all around you. That once rigid, unflexing Soviet empire is beginning to turn and crumble a little bit at the edges. All around the Soviet bloc, the erosion of that hegemony that seemed impregnable and would prevail forever. What's on the telly in Russia? The Foresight Saga. They adore the Foresight Saga, but it's knocked off the number one spot by what? Well, I can tell you. In the autumn of 1989, it was Mr. Kasparovsky. Kasparovsky was a Ukrainian psychiatrist, famous at the 1987 Olympics in Seoul for having coached the weightlifting team, the Russian weightlifting team, who I think walked away with six gold medals from that particular engagement. He too was uh, a weightlifter himself, but he was a famous hypnotist. And in 1989, he had a program on the telly in the Soviet Union, the autumn thereof, which was so popular, it was watched by 80% of the available audience, either religiously or from time to time. He was a very charismatic individual. And he would come on the television and he would invite people using velvety language and delivery to get them into his kind of world. And then he would urge them to bring vessels filled with water, saucepans, jars, pots, mugs, whatever. And then he would, through the television, send these powers via cathode rays and they would go into the liquids that the Russians surrounded their television sets with and that would give a health benefit to them. So he was believed, not just that it was fulfilled physically, but this was the important thing, that he would allay their anxieties. And it is thought that he was really a stooge for the Soviet authorities who were conscious that the population was all of a sudden picking up what the rest of the world was picking up, that the Soviet hegemony was beginning to crumble. And so the idea was that they would be palliated, soothed, perhaps diverted from any insurrectionist tendency themselves by the extraordinary charismatic efforts of Kasparovsky. He turned up again, you know, in I think it was about 2010 at other times of national crisis where they would have him on again. He's got very badly dyed hair, though. It doesn't really work for us, I don't think. <laughs> and some have suggested that he might be another weapon to be deployed by the Putin regime at a time. And so, of course, he's Ukrainian. Tricky. So maybe yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah. But he's still around. I think he's 83 now mm. oh, wow. and available for hire for parties. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fun party. Yes. There you go. Disembodied voice, do you have anything to add to that? I do. You, you said John Braid, the 17th century Scottish ophthalmologist who coined the word hypnosis. It was actually James Braid. I beg his pardon, and I resign again. <laughs> and uh, on Kasparovsky, the Russian psychotherapist, you mentioned his work with the Soviet weightlifting team at 10 golds at the 1987 World Championships rather than six. Oh, when I was talking about the Seoul Olympics, I think they got Oh, six, OK. Uh, that's a major win for me, Slim. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I mean, I'll check that out in a sec. OK, but I think at the 1987 Seoul Olympics, they got six goals. It would have been 1988 Seoul Olympics, so I'll take a little win back. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've got to the point. Can't wait any further. We're actually, I think we're equal now in our scoring system. So we're all on the level. So disembodied voice. You're going to change all of that. Can I just say? <laughs> every time, Richard, every time well, you try to get in there. There's been a bit of a clash with me in the disembodied voice today because I think, you know, wreathed in his temporary authority and with his hypnotic charm, he sometimes presents his evidence as hard fact. I think I've challenged it a little bit today. I think there was some substance to the challenge and I just want you to take that on board to see my voice with all due humility, if I may say so. <laughs> 
Actually, Kat, it's uh, you're leading with nine wins. Well done. Um, Richard has seven. Charles has eight as we enter this oh, phase of... Oh, um, so to keep you all on edge. Disappointingly, uh, handing over Richard's eighth gold medal today with a uh, well with some excellent storytelling. Despite... Thank you for your humility, disembodied boy. <laughs> he was worried, wasn't he? So. And also, it actually bolsters your authority. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded genuine, didn't it? So well, I'm on eight. We're equal now. Yes, we're, we're on nine. Yeah. But this is when you're most dangerous, Charles Spencer. Yes. Because then I know you will now use your hypnotic I double powers. double dip into my notes. <laughs> You'll use your hypnotic powers to mobilise all your formidable resources. He will. He'll sit, have a sit there victory. and swat through all his notes and <laughs> work hard scribble. I do have a lot of notes. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well done, everybody. But before we go, we have to discuss the next topics that we're going to look at. Richard, yes, can you please research British accents? Aye, aye, bonnie lass. <laughs> Was that Jamaican? How dare you? <laughs> there is a thing. There is London Jamaican. Do you know that? Yes, but that I did your note. That was <laughs> that was pure Geordie, Geordie northeast. Yes. see, Charles got it. You just honestly, Very I resign. Good. Very good. <laughs> Twice in one episode. <laughs> And Charles, Secret Services? Are you going to go yes, worldwide well, I, or...? I think I'll stick UK and US. Fantastic. Can't wait. And I am going to be looking into the Oseberg ship, which is one of the which, Norwegian oh, Viking gosh. ships. Oh, one of those. I've seen it in the it's flesh. It's a lovely one, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, the most Such beautiful. A beautiful shape. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. And um, it's got some really good stories. So there we go. That's it for this week. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review because it really helps people to find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. And you can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. And lots of people have done so already. Just write to us at rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice... I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Bye. That's fairies for you. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hypnotised.